Good morning. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. One of the difficulties of being a foreigner living in a foreign land is that there are all sorts of unwritten rules that regulate daily life. Everything from social interactions to business practices have these expectations that you don't necessarily know about until you've already unwittingly broken them. So a, a few months back I was trying to um, schedule a meeting to discuss church business with someone, uh, but the, the party wasn't able to agree a date with me, even after getting in touch with them many times. And I thought it was a bit rude, really, because uh, we, after all, pay them. We are the clients, and so uh, I thought it shouldn't be any problem to get a meeting with them. But un after unsuccessfully trying to pin them down for a few weeks, a church member who was helping me uh, took me aside and explained to me that uh, one doesn't discuss business at this time of year because it's inauspicious to a, a local uh, Hong Kong kind of mindset. Inauspicious to discuss business. And, and I had this sort of aha moment, that's why they've been putting me off and, and not willing to set any dates for a meeting. And it all became clear that there were these unwritten rules that were regulating the situation. And I said, oh, I, I didn't know that. And the church member smiled and laughed at me and said, you don't know anything. And I thought, well, that's probably right. I, I don't know much. Um, and, and they helped me sort it out. But if I ever feel frustrated with the unwritten rules that govern life here in Hong Kong, I, I sometimes think about uh, some of our Christian brothers and sisters who are doing mission work in places like Japan. So uh, a few years back, I went to a mission conference for missionaries to Japan, and they were explaining that um, there are all sorts of things that they have to think about that I wouldn't necessarily have to. 
So uh, the Japanese language, for instance, is governed by all sorts of rules based on who you're speaking to, their social rank, whether they're part of your in-group or um, they're part of another group and, and who else is in the room. All sorts of the, these rules affect how you frame a question, how you, you put it across. There are something like 16 different ways, depending on the level of politeness and uh, the rank, that you can, you can say a sentence and make a request to someone. And if you get it wrong, well, you risk um, embarrassing yourself, embarrassing the person you're dealing with, offending someone. And that's a pretty difficult thing if your main goal in uh, that culture is to share the message of Jesus. You don't want to unnecessarily offend someone. And so you have to learn um, the signs that uh, will indicate how you should speak in any given situation. But even if you manage to learn the, the language well enough to do that, which few foreigners do, then you still are expected in Japanese culture to be able to read the air. That is, to understand from the uh, pauses in the conversation, the, the, the um, uh, body language of the people you're interacting with, whether what you're saying is creating discomfort or uh, perhaps uh, you know, harming the, the harmony of the room. And yet, amazingly, men and women are able to figure these things out in a culture that's not their own, uh, to learn the signs and to live according to them. Because people are incredibly clever. And, and I guess all of us have had to learn to, to read the signs, interpret the signs in one way or another. So, if you're a parent, you learn the signs that your children are tired and in need of a nap. You learn that pretty quickly. Or even more quickly, if they're in need of a bathroom break when you are potty training them, you learn what the signs are. If you're a teacher and a student is acting up in class, you, you learn the signs that tell you whether this is uh, someone who's not quite grasping the material and needs extra help, or somebody who is uh, just a bit bored. Maybe they're not being challenged enough, and so you need to give them more. You learn uh, how to interpret the signs. If you work in finance, you, you learn how to interpret the seeming chaos of the markets in order to invest your money and, and your client's money and to make more for yourself. And according to Jesus, it's possible to be incredibly clever in all these ways, incredibly perceptive in all those areas of life, and yet to completely fail to interpret spiritual signs of reality. So we, we read in uh, chapter 16, verse 2 of Matthew from our reading this morning. He replied, Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, uh, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the, the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You may have heard it put slightly differently. In English, the idiom is red sky in, uh, at night, sailor's delight, red sky in morning, sailor's warning. And uh, that sort of um, wisdom about how to predict the weather, that already in Jesus' time was an established piece of um, common knowledge. So there are Latin proverbs, there are Greek proverbs that convey the same thing. 
And if you were a sailor or a shepherd or a person just trying to decide whether you wanted to travel on a given day, it was a really helpful thing to know what sort of weather you should expect. To know how to interpret the sign would help you to live in the right sort of way. Only somebody who was really ignorant of that rule or foolish would just uh, ignore the rule, maybe, if they were foolish. Uh, and uh, they wouldn't orient themselves according to that reality. But that would be ignorant or foolish. So just as obviously, Jesus is saying, as um, there are these publicly recognizable signs in the sky about what the weather is going to be like, just as obviously, there are publicly recognizable, obvious signs about who Jesus is that should lead us to the truth about him. But in this morning's reading, Jesus warns us uh, to avoid an attitude that will keep us from seeing that spiritual reality. And that attitude to avoid is the cynical skepticism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So all along the way, in Matthew's Gospel, as Jesus is, he's been going about his public ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have displayed a cynical skepticism towards him. We see in chapter 9, when, when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, the one who wrote this gospel, the Pharisees, what they see is only uh, something to criticize. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they say, in chapter 9. And then again in chapter 12, as Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, well, they criticize him. Should you be working on the Sabbath? And then he casts out a demon from somebody, and the Pharisees charge him with uh, casting out a demon by uh, the power of demons. And then again in chapter 15, they got upset because Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands, as was the tradition of the day. Well, they seem to take every minute opportunity uh, to just needle at Jesus and, and to just criticize and accuse. And that's what we see in verse 1 of our reading today. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now they came not to just observe, but to test him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now, presumably, they had heard about the feeding of the 5,000, or, or the feeding of the 4,000, or, or the walking on water, or the casting out demons, uh, and all the other signs he performed, the miraculous healings. All of this stuff was becoming common knowledge, and that's why these crowds were gathering around Jesus. In the Gospels, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the crowds, they never really dispute that there was some sort of supernatural power that Jesus was displaying. They simply refuse to acknowledge what that power means, what, that, what those signs mean. Those signs, they weren't enough for them. They came with an attitude of cynical skepticism that said, unless Jesus does what we demand on our terms, he's a fraud. They want him to jump through their hoops. They, they want him to be their servant, and they want to be the masters. They're looking for a genie and not a god. But Jesus knows their hearts, and so he refuses them. In verses 2 and 3, as we've already seen, he says that they have more than enough evidence 
to know the truth. They can interpret the signs of the time, or they should be able to. And then in verse 4, he passes a verdict on them, and he pronounces judgment on them. Verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. He declares them to be wicked and adulterous, not because they're looking for a sign, but because they look and they look and they go on looking after all the signs they've already been given. The problem is that they overlook the signs. They overlook what's right in front of them. And so he pronounces judgment. Verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Well, the sign of Jonah, Jesus had uh, said exactly the same thing about the sign of Jonah uh, back in chapter 12, verse 39. But here we see Jesus reusing some of his material, as every good preacher sometimes does, as every good teacher sometimes does. He reuses some of that material here among this new crowd. And he doesn't go into as much detail as he does in chapter 12. He, he just walks away after stating it. So what are we to make of that? What are we to understand by the sign of Jonah? Well, you're probably familiar with the book of Jonah. It's one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. Jonah, he was the reluctant prophet uh, of Israel who, who was told to take a message of judgment to Nineveh, that great capital city of the enemies of Israel, the Ninevites. Uh, but he refused a direct command from God, and uh, because he was afraid that God would be gracious to these Ninevites, and we don't want them to be saved, he uh, sailed in exactly the opposite direction to Nineveh. Well, God being the, the God of heaven and earth and uh, of all that lies therein, he brewed up a storm, and Jonah was thrown overboard by the sailors into the sea, and uh, there he was entombed, in a, in a way, in the belly of a fish for three days. And after three days, he was spit up and uh, came to Nineveh. It was kind of a, a resurrection of, of sorts. And uh, as this prophet, who had come out of the depths, declared a message of judgment on Nineveh, well, the Ninevites listened. Every man, woman, and child repented of their sin. Even uh, the cattle, we're told in the book of Jonah, wore sackcloth in, in shame and mourning over their sin. And so God's judgment on that city was averted. He showed them mercy. And that caused Jonah to be even more embittered towards God. Because God showed mercy to the nasty Ninevites. Now that is the story of Jonah, but what is the sign that Jesus is pointing to in that story? Is it the death and resurrection of God's messenger? Is it the message of judgment that Jonah pronounces over Nineveh? Is that the sign? Well, it could be either of those things. But I think it, it's more likely to be in the context of Matthew's gospel, uh, of this section of Matthew's gospel even, 
it's more likely to be that the sign of Jonah, which condemns the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the evil generation, is that of repentance and faith among the Gentiles. You may remember from last week at the end of chapter 15 that Jesus has just briefly been ministering in a Gentile territory in Tyre and Sidon, uh, just northwest of Galilee. And the Gentiles there had showed great faith. Now what they have seen Jesus doing in that brief period of time as um, he healed the, the daughter of the, the Canaanite woman, and as he fed the 4,000 uh, on his way back, the, the 4,000 Gentiles, that led them to worship Jesus and to praise the God of Israel. But now, Jesus, as he's back in Galilee, he's once again confronted by this unbelief and this opposition from his own people. The book of Jonah, as part of Israel's scripture, is warning it's a warning sign to Israel about their hard-heartedness in contrast to God's graciousness to those who receive his message. And now, as this encounter brings an end to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, after this point, he departs out of Galilee and begins to make his way toward Jerusalem throughout Matthew's Gospel. He is sort of saying that the only additional sign they're going to see from this point on is the repentance and faith uh, that other people show uh, as a response to Jesus' ministry. And so at the end of Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 28, after Jesus has uh, gone into the depths of the tomb and risen out again. As he meets with his disciples, he meets them again in Galilee. That's the next time that we find him in Galilee. And um, on the mountain there, as they stand before the risen Christ, what mission does Jesus give them? Not to go down the mountain into Galilee and to make disciples, but to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded. The sign of Jonah that condemns the, the wicked and adulterous generation of skeptical cynics is the faith and the repentance of people from all nations at the word of Jesus Christ. Do you see? Now, how is this a warning to us? Well, I think in at least two ways. Well, the first is, it's a warning not to overlook the signs that should lead us to repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, these stories that we know so well from Matthew's Gospel, the, uh, that of Jesus being born of a virgin, of healing the multitudes, of feeding the 5,000, of walking on water, and eventually of dying on the cross and rising again in three days' time, well, those are signs that should lead us to faith in him. There's never been anyone else like him. No one has even... Uh, claimed the sorts of things uh, that we read him doing in these Gospels. He is undoubtedly from God, and he is in fact God in the flesh. 
It's one thing to be ignorant about all those stories, but it's, it's quite another if we've heard these things and, and we've seen the evidence for their truth, and yet we remain cynically skeptical about them. We demand that he give us even more signs. Well, then we fall under the same verdict as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks and goes on seeking after a sign. There is, I think, something of a trend in the world right now uh, of recognizing the tremendous value and importance of Jesus' life and his teaching, but stopping short of bowing the knee to him. Non-Christian public intellectuals like the uh, psychiatrist Jordan Peterson or the, the historian Tom Holland uh, and many others in, in the kind of academic intellectual sphere, they've written often about how Christianity is uh, the wellspring of insight into the human condition. It's uh, the source of all of Western society's highest ideals about human rights and equality and dignity and, and all the, the kind of moral uh, standards that we hold high. These are, I think, the academic equivalents of uh, parents who, who want their children to grow up um, with the good moral framework of Christianity, even though they don't really believe in it themselves. They leave it for the children, but it's good for the children. But in both cases, it's people overlooking the spiritual conclusions that these signs should be pointing them towards. You know, if Jesus gives us the best moral framework for life, if he does uh, give uh, the, the most flourishing vision for a society, shouldn't we recognize him as Lord and Savior? Doesn't that just make sense? If his followers have built uh, the best hospitals and schools and care facilities and charities across our city and across the world for hundreds of years, and they've plastered his name on the side of them and put his symbols all around and uh, around about them, crosses here, there, and everywhere, shouldn't we pause to consider who could make humans love their neighbors like that? If we know people who swear up and down that Jesus has changed their lives for the better, given them peace in the midst of trials, uh, forgiveness in the wake of their failures, and, and hope in the face of death, well, shouldn't we take their testimonies as signs of his divine, life-giving power? Isn't there a conclusion to draw from these signs? So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, it's a warning for us that if we persist in this cynical, skeptical stance towards Jesus, only the sign of Jonah will remain for us. You know, Jesus is patient, but he will not plead with us forever. In my experience, there are people who have an interest in Jesus, but who never quite cross the line into faith. Uh, they want, uh, they experience, rather, something of um, 
confusion that they want to clear up, or they have some objection that they want to have answered, or, or uh, maybe they have a situation in their lives that they want him to address. And if those things, if he can do those things, then they'll believe, but not until then. But that is to make him out to be our servant rather than our master. You know, we put ourselves in the judgment seat, we put Jesus in the dock, and we make him make a case for himself as God. Well, who are we to do that? And when bad things happen, or when life gets busy, and we lose interest in Jesus because we just haven't the time anymore, well, uh, that's actually what happens in verse 4. It's not so much us losing interest in Jesus as Jesus left them and went away. Some people will inevitably treat Jesus as a small thing, but there are people who will respond to the gospel. There are people who will embrace the offer of forgiveness, of eternal life, and do it with great zeal. They'll find profound joy in living for him and in seeing his power at work in their lives. And the church will grow without the cynical skeptics. I think that is what is happening in much of the Western world today. Our cultures, they've been profoundly shaped and profoundly blessed by God in the past, as the gospel was widely preached, as it was broadly believed. But now in the UK, in the US, in Australia, and other places, we treat the gospel of Jesus Christ as unimportant and as old-fashioned and as something uh, that we would be better on moving beyond. And therefore, in our countries, we, we see the decline of the Christian church in many places, in most places even. And yet in our Western countries that we think we've uh, advanced so far in, we hear in some distant lands, in parts of Africa, in China, in other parts of Asia, in South America, we hear of this exponential growth in the church, of this explosion of Christians across the world. And we think, hmm, I wonder what's going on there. Well, Jesus left them and he went away. Jesus hasn't stopped drawing himself, uh, drawing people rather, to himself. He's just doing it uh, elsewhere. He's doing it more than he's ever done in history. Uh, but not in the places where the cynics and the skeptics uh, refuse to believe in him. In a sense, then, uh, the example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is a warning for non-Christian people. If you come to Jesus as a cynical skeptic, uh, you will never interpret the signs that he does rightly. But it is also an encouragement if you come to him genuinely, if you come to him seeking to understand and to look at the evidence before you, you will find a gracious God, a God who sends his son to the depths of the grave and who raises him up again in three days to preach a message of peace to his enemies, to welcome them into an eternal fellowship with him. 
But um, more briefly, lastly here, uh, more briefly, there is a warning and an encouragement for Christians as well. The warning is to watch out for false teaching, and the encouragement is to go deeper in faith. When they uh, went across the lake, verse 5, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, they discussed this amongst themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Just as we have come to expect from the disciples, they are slow to understand. And, and if we're honest, our hearts are, are very much like theirs. Their, their hearts are set on the things below, namely on the stomachs that are rumbling. It's their immediate needs that occupy their minds. And so they miss the whole point of Jesus' signs. Jesus warns them and us to beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's speaking of false teaching there. Now, a little yeast is all that's required to uh, change a, a whole loaf of bread. And likewise, a little false teaching is all that's needed to change the nature of somebody's whole faith. Which is why it's worth being careful about the religious teaching that we, that we read and, and that we listen to, wherever that might be. A seemingly small falsehood can end up leading us completely astray in our Christian lives. And so what is the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, they have uh, very different theological views from one another. The, the Pharisees, they might be considered um, social and religious uh, legalists. And the Sadducees, they might be considered social and religious liberals. And so they made strange partners, but they were united in at least two things. First, the, the cynical skepticism that they had towards Jesus. And we've already discussed that. Uh, where they came to him, it was not so much to discover uh, who he was and what he was doing as to prove who they knew him to be to themselves and to others. But then secondly, the, there was the constant demand for more. Among the first English words that my son Josiah uh, picked up in, in our household was more. At two years old, he might not be able to name the food, uh, and even if he can, he might not be able to pronounce it properly, but he knows how to demand more. He has a full plate, but he wants more. Only recently, he started shifting to more, please, <laughs> sort of question at the end, please. But that is part of the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. And it's a false teaching that can infect believers. A constant demand for more. It's wanting more than what Jesus has promised us as though forgiveness and grace and eternal life, they aren't good enough without, for example, good health and financial prosperity and freedom from the effects of sin. It's as though the revealed will of God shown to us in the scriptures isn't sufficient without a personal and specific word from God about your uh, current situation. It's as though 
the Spirit's saving and sanctifying work in your life isn't miraculous enough without a, a kind of spine-tingling supernatural experience that you can tell others about. And when we chase after uh, more lively, more relevant, um, more powerful, more dynamic, uh, more than what Jesus has promised us, it's not only a sign of our spiritual immaturity, but it's also a dangerous yeast that can infect our whole faith, and it can lead us to ruin. Because we will inevitably be disappointed when God doesn't do what he hasn't promised to do, and what we've expected him to do. And we will begin to doubt his goodness to us. And we may eventually slip into the cynical skepticism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees towards Jesus. But if our faith has been focused on the superficial surface areas like the disciples, always concerned with our rumbling stomachs, well then encouragement is here as well, that uh, there is more depth to Jesus than we have understood. He has power beyond providing our daily bread. He provides the bread of life. He not only addresses our immediate needs, he also addresses and makes provision for our eternal needs. Look below the surface of Jesus' obvious provisions in your life, and you will discover there that you have every reason to trust him. You have every reason to love him. You have every reason to stay close to him because he is the Lord. He is uh, the gracious Savior. He is uh, God's Son who went to the, the depths of the grave and rose to new life to proclaim the message of salvation to his enemies. So let's praise him as we close this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, the Lord Jesus gave us obvious signs of who he is and what he came to do. Please help us to attend to them rightly, to genuinely um, perceive the spiritual truth that they show us, and not to come with our own agendas, with our own demands that will blind us to who he is. Lord, please open blind eyes of any who might be listening today. And please awaken us to um, false teaching, any yeast that has begun to infect our faith. And help us to cast it out so that we might have a, a pure faith, a holy love for the Lord Jesus Christ as he has for us. So we ask it in his name. Amen.